0: Good morning, Uh, my name is Tristan Kreider, and uh, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I'm just uh, glad that you're here this morning, if you are a guest this morning, and uh, glad to be here with you guys today as we continue our series in Colossians, Rooted, and we're going to be in um, verses 21, chapter 1, verse 21 through 23 today, so you can go ahead and open up your journals or your Bible, uh, whatever you're reading from this morning, and um, if you are visiting with us today, as we've gone through this series, we have provided scripture journals uh, for those who would like to take notes. And so we would invite you to get one of those out at our hospitality, at hospitality table um, if you do not already have one. And so um, today we're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. But I'd actually like us to start reading at verse 18 this morning. Um, so that we can see these verses in light of what Paul's just said about the identity of Christ and the nature of God's work, as well as the hope um, that we have. And uh, I'm hoping that we uh, pick up on a couple themes this morning. They're going to be continued through today's text. So let's begin in verse 18. And he... who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, <clears throat> um, not too many years ago, uh, before the CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, passed away, I remember hearing a, um, uh, an interview from him, or at least a, a part of it. And in that, in that interview, uh, this guy who um, changed, really, the technological landscape of our time and was an innovator, a leader, um, and at the end of building this, this empire, um, he was on his deathbed, and somebody asked him a question that I uh, just stuck with me. And they said, "Do you have any regrets?" And I remember his answer was he said he only had one regret. And that one regret was that he wished, after building an empire, he, he wished that he had a better relationship with his son. You know, I have no doubt in my mind that um, for most of us, when we're either upon our deathbeds or as we move towards life, that the most pressing things that weigh on us uh, will not be our accomplishments. It won't be our missed uh, career opportunities. It's not going to be the amount of possessions we acquire. It's not going to be how many views I got on TikTok and Instagram. Those are not going be, to be the things that we're concerned about. Um, rather, it's going to be the things that the, the most impress on our minds are going to be those things that revolve around relationships. But the one question that will eclipse all of those questions will be the question, what is my standing before God? Am I a friend of God? And so... As we get into this text today, I, wanna, I want you to just hold on to that, and we're going to come back to that. So um, last, um, last week, Colton led us through verses 15 through 20, and in verses 15 through 20, um, we see that Paul just has been praying for the Colossians, and he's praying very specific things, and then he launches into this exaltation of Jesus. And so um, as he does that, he... He just is displaying the excellencies of who Jesus is that he is the visible expression of the invisible God, that he is before and firstborn of creation, that in him all things were created heaven and earth, invisible and visible, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him, for him. And he is before all things. And in him they even all hold together. And so. He has exalted Christ, and really the scene here that we see really is is that Christ is outside. He is other than creation. He is transcendent. His otherliness is something that we cannot know because we're created beings. And so um, then he he switches gears and then goes in and talks about how Christ is the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And in all of these verses, there's no personal reference to the Colossians. In fact, the last time he had mentioned the Colossians was back up in verse 13, where he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so he exalts Christ in this hymn-like Um, structure, and then he moves into verse 21, where um, he says, and you. And so Paul, wanting to solidify the reality of what we see in verse 13, that there has been this transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, um, what he he wants them to be confident. He doesn't want them to be uh, he wants them to be steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He didn't want their faith to become shipwrecked. And so um, he also going to say, I don't I don't want you to be taken captive by empty philosophies and deception and human traditions. And so he wants them, he's desiring that they would be filled and reconciled to God so that one day they'll be presented to him holy and blameless. And so to do this in order to do this, um, he does what most of us, would probably do. He tells them something. He says, how horrible they were. And he paints this dire picture of who they were. And he gets really personal. He is getting into their lives and he's never met them. And so he says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Um sometimes, you know, we just don't like things to sound too bad. Um, we often um, will use uh, language to soften the reality of things so it becomes less offensive. and in our um, in our text today, there is a, a really poignant expression of the divine diagnosis of humanity's true nature. and so uh, the Bible's description of humanity is, is in a certain way. It's, it's his own self-affirmation of the divine authority that God has given it. Because when men speak of men, we often uh, have a tendency to, to just paint it in a good light. But here we see um, that Paul is being brutally honest with them. So, you know, we often will, will speak in euphem- euphemisms. And so, like, for instance, uh, Colton can say today, I'm not old. I'm just experienced. And, you know, I know he was mentioning my uh, sense of time last week, and I wasn't actually late. I was just early early for tomorrow. And, um, you know, uh, I have a friend, and she's not bossy. She's uh, just outspoken. Um, And you know what? The school lunch is not horrible. It's just digestively challenged. (laughs) My socks, uh, they don't actually stink. They just got odor-retentive athletic footwear. And so we'll use um, the language to soften the realities of offensive things. It's not gossip, it's transmission of near-factual information. Sometimes we just don't want to hear things that sound too bad. And so when Scripture speaks about the sin nature and our relationship to God, it's unapologetically brutal. And so Paul's desiring that the Colossians be stable and steadfast, that they're not shifted, and that they're rooted before he launches in and tells them how to live. And so he says you're alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. And so let's just go one by one through those real quick. Um, and when he says you are alienated, uh, that's just a Greek word for estranged or cut off, separated. Why are we alienated? And Isaiah 59, verse 2 gives us a very clear description of the why. I know Rich alluded to this earlier, but your up good, it's up there, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and and your God and your sin, your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Alienated. In God's moral economy, there are only two I'm sorry, and in God's economy, there's only two moral currencies. There's righteousness, and there is sin, and there are no in-betweens. And He only accepts. One. And if you're a foreigner trespassing on a king's land, the king's rightful property, uh, you don't have a home in the kingdom of God. Um, a, a foreigner does uh, alienate somebody who's alienated. They don't obey the king's law, they're not under, but they're under the judgment of them. They're not motivated by the king's values or treasures. They don't have the rights to the king's inheritance, They can't operate in the king's authority. They don't have the king's protection. They don't have the king's pleasure. They don't belong in the king's place. And they're not welcome in the king's presence. They're enemies of God who have rejected His rightful rule. And sin's devastation here that Paul is painting is that it is universal. It affects all creation it, you know that because he says in verse 20 that he is reconciling all things. All things. Not some things, not some people. He has to bring about some reconciliation for all of creation. And so, he also makes it personal. This is not some passive distance from God. It's a very active Rather, it's an objective reality, and it's an active hostility towards God. And as much as a terrorist group that would attack a city in our nation is an enemy, so we are enemies to God in conflict with our Creator before we're reconciled to Him. And so the depravity of this alienation from God impacts both the mind, and the will. And so he goes on, and before we move on, just notice there's a pluralism kind of between this verse when he speaks of alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, and verse 10, where Paul is praise for the Colossians, basically antithesis of these three statements. And he says they're alienated, but in verse 10 he's praying that they would increase in knowledge and intimacy of God. He says, you're hostile in mind, but he is praying that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. They're doing evil, they, would, they were doing evil deeds, but he's praying that they would bear fruit in every good work. And so he moves on to hostility, and, host, um, and the Greek translation of hostile or. Hostile in some versions is just enemies. It um, can also be translated hateful. Um, so, before reconciled to God in our minds, we are enemies to God. And Romans 8, verse 6 and 7 make this so clear. And Paul says, The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit. To God's law, indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when Paul says that they were hostile in mind, he doesn't merely mean that there's some imaginary enmity between them. It's a hostility that's issued forth from their consciousness, and it's a decision to pursue evil behavior. And we are by nature, we're unsubmissive people. We don't like to subject ourselves to authority, and we've elevated ourselves above God and would rather call the shots and be a God unto ourselves than to accept his, his rule. We'd rather define our own morals, define our own reality, redefine even God's principles of marriage, maybe even redefine God's natural order of manhood and womanhood. Rejecting the very natural order that God has made obvious. And he says that this um, mindset, then he goes on, he says that basically uh, overflows into evil deeds. And that was our mindset before we were reconciled before being brought to God. And so then he says, um, well, actually, let's, let's ask the question. The question here is, that in, in light of this hostility, what is God's response? What is God's response to this hostility of the whole of man, of all those who are sons of Adam? And we see what he says here in verse Actually, verse twenty-two. He said, "And you once were enemy, or alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death." God's response to the hostility of man is that He accomplishes reconciliation. And what is reconciliation? Um, I found out that uh, reconciliation is actually a Greek word, but it is not a Hebrew word. But That does not mean that the Old Testament concept of reconciliation does not uh, appear in the Old Testament. But reconciliation is its a powerful concept, and in short, it's the bringing together of two parties that are estranged or in dispute. And it basically means to change or to exchange. It was a Greek a term for a financial transaction. and the biblical understanding of reconciliation is, um, is the complete restoration of the relationship between God and between man. And God um, and it's God's will that men be reconciled to himself, as he says in verse 20. And um, some of the things that are essential for reconciliation are that there has to be a recognition of the relationship breakdown, first of all. Um, And reconciliation can only happen if both sides agree to the reconciliation. It requires humility. It also requires a readiness to deal with the causes that broke down the relationship and a desire to rebuild it. And for, um, in, in short, it's hard. And it requires humility, and it requires sacrifice. And in the ancient world, it was um, it was common for, uh, oh wait, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. Um, humanity, oh, for humanity to be reconciled to God requires an even greater humility than a person-to-person reconciliation. And humanity is under the demands of God's righteous law, and those demands have to be met. And so God doesn't compromise on his holiness. He can't be other than he is. And for him to change means that he would be less than God. In the ancient world in reconciliation, it was common for uh, reconciliation to take place in two, two ways. That there was a third party that could seek the reconciliation, or and this is the most common, that the alienated party who caused the offense that created the alienation takes the first step. And so in the New Testament, we actually see, uh, I believe, just two examples where one is Jesus, uh, of, a, I'm sorry, two examples of a person-to-person reconciliation. One is Jesus speaking of brothers in Matthew 5. Another is in uh, Colossians 7, 1 uh, Colossians 7, 11. Where there's a wife who had left her husband, and in both cases, the person who's seeking re- uh, i am sorry—the person uh, seeking the re- reconciliation is said to be the one who is reconciled to the other person. The offender can only fess, uh, The offender can confess a fault, offer reparations, they can seek forgiveness, but the final decision lies with the injured party, who will either grant a reprieve or. Uh, and bring an end to the hostility or continue the estrangement. But in the restoration of a relationship between God and humanity, there is an unexpected twist. And just as all things were created, oh, look at verse 20 with me. It says, just, uh, just as all things were created through Him, that is Jesus, and for Him. So also all things must be reconciled through him. God is the reconciler. He initiated and we're the beneficiaries. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus is God's declaration that he is the initiator of reconciliation, that it lies exclusively with him. It was God who chose to dwell among us. And so if you look back at verse 19 and 20 and then couple it with our, one of our verses today, verse 22, what we see is that in him, in verse 19, in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God, the Father, was pleased to dwell. And through, verse 20, through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 22, he says, And you, he, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Not once in Scripture is God said to be reconciled. God is the agent, and he is the reconciler. And no amount of human effort or sacrifice will remove the hostility or bridge the chasm that's been created between us and God. And so, how does he reconcile? By what means does he reconcile? In verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled, he, God, has now reconciled you, the Colossians, in his body, that's Christ's body of flesh, by his death. And so what we see here is that reconciliation happens as a result of Christ's substitutionary death in our place. That alone moves man from being under the judgment of God's wrath and into his joy and pleasure. And so um, why does Paul use the words body of flesh here? I think there's a couple reasons. Um, um not referring, he's not referring to the body, his church, because it's not association with God's people that brings about salvation. It's only Jesus' death. And then um in the second century would develop, as Colton's been talking about, um, this Gnostic thought, which was like the it was basically the Hellenization of Christianity where, where Gnostics were trying to take Christianity and make it more palatable and more re- uh, relevant for the, the Greek culture. And as a result of that, heresies rose within the church. And one of the heresies that rose within the church was, was that, um, that Jesus didn't have a physical body. And, and that's a big problem if that's true. And so here Paul is, uh, many years before that arises, but yet he's dealing with it because in his body of flesh means that Jesus had a physical body. And it's said that if some Gnostics would say that well Jesus would walk around and as he walked in the sand, they left no footprint. But the problem with that is is if Jesus didn't die, there's no substitution for us. No blood has been shed. The wrath of God that it is demanded as a result of a violation of his holy law never took place. And so salvation um, necessarily requires the death of the God man. And only a human could pay the price for a sin, for sin. An angel could not pay that. God Wasn't himself going to die. Only Jesus' sinless life could pay the price of sin. So, as we move on, Paul lists three effects of the sacrifice of Jesus' death. And here they are. He says that you are holy in his sight. There's a removal of our position, I'm sorry, a reversal of our position our positional relationship to God. And so we're separated from sin now and set apart to God. And he also says that you're without blemish. Pure. Spotless. And then he says you're above reproach, which is uh, refers to a new legal status before God. And... Um, A legal term expressing the full vindication of a not guilty verdict that you are free of accusation when you stand before God in His holiness. And so really what we see here is that in Christ's indwelling, the Father's indwelling in Christ, the fullness of Jesus, divinity, is that we see what Jesus is as a give-and-take Savior. as We like to think of Him as a give-give Savior, right? But He gave, He gave, and He took. He took the grave for us. Jesus never sinned, but He united Himself to sinners, the unrighteous covenant breakers, in order to pay their death penalty. In Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so, he took the grave, but what he gave us was resurrection life. And so Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that just as we born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We get his eternal life his image. He took on the image of Adam and clothed himself in humanity, became a brother to mankind in order that we might also become like him, that we might take on his divine nature. So he takes on also our guilt. Uh, He's taken the curse in place of his people so that their guilty status before God can be changed. They're no longer sinners. And so really, this payment of his life is a picture of a financial... Uh, it's, it's the biblical picture of... Fi- like, uh, Sorry, redemption is like the picture of financial debt. That what's owed is wiped away. That we're forgiven. So he takes our guilt, but he gives us his righteousness his record of Jesus record of living a righteous life becomes our ours so when god looks at those who are reconciled in christ he doesn't see sinner he doesn't see covenant breaker he doesn't see sinfulness he sees the righteous acts of jesus and so um i want to i want to kind of look at verse uh real quickly at at verses um 15 through 20, because we, as we go through Colossians here in this, in these texts, um, I think there's just some themes that can help um, us to, to see the, the excellencies of who Christ is. Because in verse 15 through 20, Paul's describing the excellencies of Christ's identity, his nature, his work, his authority over creation. And so when you consider that In verse 15 through 17, um, when you consider those really in the light of Genesis, that there are numerous references to the creation story. Well, Jesus—I'm uh, sorry—Adam was created in God's image, but Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. That Adam was first born in creation, but Jesus precedes creation. He's eternal. He's supreme. And his glory transcends and surpasses that of creation. He's transcendent. And rather than a created being, all things were created by him, through him, and for him, and they find their existence in him. And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together, and and they're sustained by his power. So we see this Kind of parallel of the or we, I'm sorry parallel, we see this allusion to Genesis and the creation story. Um, and then I think what you see really in verses 18 through 20 is not the creation, but a new creation, that God is doing something new through Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection. And Paul describes the new creation that takes place in the life of a believer, and in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 21, Paul will link new creation and reconciliation. And I want to read that text. I'm going to read it all the way through. Maybe jot that down, 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21, if you don't have your Bible with you today. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's Reconciliation of humanity and the death of Christ was the beginning, it was the reversal of the alienation introduced at the fall. And it's a return to the peaceful conditions of the original creation where hostility's gone and where God dwells not with us as in a garden or among us as in a tabernacle or a temple, but with not he he dwells with in men, and they're no longer they're no longer in Adam. That's why Paul says and he's talking to Colossians. They're no longer in Adam, and he says this is why, uh he says. You have been raised with Christ. Colossians three verse one, and in verse uh, sorry chapter two verse thirteen he says, God made you alive together with Him. And in Colossians 2.13, he says, this is the mystery, uh, sorry, this mystery which is Christ in you. The new creation is that that God was not just uh, dwelling within human flesh, but that he was going to dwell within his people. And so throughout the Old Testament to the New, we see that God's presence was in the garden, that it was in the tabernacle, it was in the temple, and... Then its fullness was expressed in Jesus. And, but even the, the visual uh, sorry, even the picture of the temple, which was supposed to be a reminder that God was present among his people, that he was Emmanuel, even, even that really was like a double-edged sword. It was a, it was a reminder of God's presence among his people, but it was also a reminder that no one could enter. No one could enter the Holy of Holies except for a priest on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, and he had to have a perfect, spotless, unblemished sacrifice, shed the blood of that animal, and as a substitution, or as an atonement, a substitution for the sins of the people, and he could enter in. But, Paul says in verse 19 about Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so Christ's body becomes the temple of the the divine presence of God. And John speaks of Christ's resurrection as establishing um, the true temple when Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And so, Jesus really has become the, like the theological, geographical point from which the rest of the new creation will spread. And His resurrection, where Paul says in verse um, 18 that He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's speaking of the resurrection there. That the new creation comes forth from Christ and His resurrection is the inauguration of a new creation, and so God, um, so Jesus is God's tabernacle. He's His tabernacling presence on earth, and the Old, Test- the Old Testament temple uh, was a place where God would make His face shine upon His people, and where He would give them peace, according to Numbers six twenty-five. And so now, when people believe in Christ, they're not identified as sinners. They're identified in Him. They enter into the temple of God's presence and they're reconciled with Him. It's it's there in Christ alone that we have peace. And so, God, or, or sorry, Christ is supreme over all creation. He's supreme in the new creation, his people, and Christ is supreme in his people, the church. And so, um, let's jump back into uh, our verse. When he's in verse um, twenty-two, here he says, "He says he has now reconciled." He's speaking of the Colossians. He's now reconciled you, and for what purpose, though? in order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before him, that is, God. So what we see here is that the purpose of reconciliation is so that God's people might be taken and presented to him. And there is really an already, but a not yet happening here. That on one hand, they have a positional holiness where God looks at them, he sees righteousness. And then on the other hand, we have um, the reality that God is going to bring consummation and complete the new creation. That's not done yet. But there's a view towards the future and a hope that God is going to complete what he's doing. And that what God's doing in the lives of the Colossians and in our very lives... That it will be brought to its fulfillment. And then he says in Colossians 1, verse 4, back there, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. He is sure of that fact. And so he says, you who were once alienated, hostile mind, doing evil these. He has, God has moved, now reconciled. And I think as, as Christians, oftentimes we get um, we get our I must do's mixed up. We get them out of order. Um, and Paul here is really uh, wanting before, he's wanting their living and their doing and the I must do's to be in the right order here. Because in chapter 2 to 4, um, Paul is going to speak about living out that which is already true about them. And so before he tells them uh, what, they, what they must do or gives them instruction on how to live, he's laying a solid found, uh, doctrinal foundation here. And understanding who God is and what he's done in light of who he is, this provides really the momentum for a hope-shaped life that treasures the gospel and that stirs us to obey Christ's word, not because we have to, but because of who he is and what he's done in light of who he is. And so when Paul goes on to instruct them uh, how to live as one who's created in the image of Christ as as a new creation, He charges them and he says he's praying for them that they'd walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, not to earn his favor, but to act upon their new nature. That which is already positionally true about them. To live in a manner consistent with who they are in Christ. And so he'll tell them, you once walked in sinful passions, in in chapter 3, verse 7, but put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And he'll say in verse 1, chapter 3, you've been raised with Christ. Colossians 2, 27, he says, So you've been made known the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you. And in verse chapter 3, verse 12, he'll, he calls them God's chosen ones, His holy and beloved. That address really is like an echo of God the Father's pronouncement over His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is who He sees when He looks at you if you are in Christ. He has reconciled all So really, God's creation is inaugurated here by Jesus' resurrection. And so he says, it's the beginning. He's going to finish it. I'm going to touch on this last verse real quick. He says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, you know when Paul is so forcefully describing the saving work of God um, and how he's spoken about how God has transferred you, he has delivered you, you're raised with Christ, and then he says, "If." It ought to give us pause. If, and. I I think the particle "if" is really indicating a real condition, and it's not just Paul using theological speculation here. It's a real warning, and um, and so he doesn't want them to see them abandoning their faith. He doesn't want to see them shipwrecked. He's wanting them. He doesn't want them to fall away. He wants he um, we and I think we today need to consider the weightiness of this. Um, it's not a statement of doubt in the genuine nature of their faith because he's already said in verse 5, he says um, that there's a hope laid up for you and that when you when they believe, um, they believe in the word of truth, the gospel. And so he's not doubting God's ability either to complete the work. Um, but um, I hope this is clear too. Paul's also not saying to the Colossians that their salvation depends on their future obedience. It's not the way salvation salvation is earned. Um, So it's not as if we can earn pleasure, God's pleasure, or eradicate the enmity by obeying Him. Uh, That work's already done. Rather, I think what he's saying is that their steadfast obedience to the gospel is to be rooted in the reality of their identity in Christ as His new creation. And the word stable translated here is also translated grounded in Ephesians. So Paul wants them to be rooted in Christ, continuing and not shifting. Paul says continue in the faith, don't shift. It's almost like he's saying, go, don't go. It's not a contradiction here. It's more of like, think of the trajectory of a ship. That has one single destination, and if it goes off course, it ends up shipwrecked. Living your life in view of the gospel because of who He is, because of what He's done. So, their hope alone, and our hope this morning, lies alone in the gospel. God's purpose is not just to bring us into eternal relationship with him for eternity but but that we would live a transforming fellowship in this life and he's producing a holy people who were who will represent him to the world they have become friends of the living god and they're becoming aliens to the world and so this morning as we close, I'd ask you, uh, I've got two questions for two groups of people. One is, if you are not sure of your standing before God, then Paul's words in First in Corinthians, sorry second Corinthians chapter five were, "He who made no sin." all uh, right sorry, he, who he who had no sin." was made sin for you. And so, he says, be reconciled. God has opened the door to humanity. Come to him. And for those of us who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, I'd ask you this morning, what is it that drives you? What's been driving you this week? Are you focused on doing or are you focused on Christ's supremacy. And so remember that Christ is in you. You have a new nature and he has commissioned you as his ambassador with a message of reconciliation.